Well, good morning, Deer Creek Church. So great, so great to be with you guys this morning. Hey, I've seen a lot of new faces this morning. So if you have uh, come here for the first time, if I haven't met you, my name's Daniel. I'm one of the teachers here at Deer Creek Church. And I realize actually for many of you, especially around the Christmas season, this actually might be the first time that many of you have ever stepped foot inside a church. This may be the first time you've ever been with a group of Christians in one place. So if that's you this morning, I want to say two things, two things as we start. The first is just is welcome. Uh, I hope that this is a space for you where you can come, you can ask questions, you can express your misgivings, where you can even bring your skepticism and, and feel like that's welcomed, that sincere questions can be welcomed here because this is the reality. We live in a polarized society, don't we? We live in a society filled with division, and we see our church as a place where you can come, you can have meaningful dialogue, you can ask sincere questions in the midst of a society or a culture that is filled with division and strife and polarization. So if that's you this morning, welcome, and I hope you join us for our Q&A, which is going to be taking place here in the sanctuary after our teaching this morning. But second thing I want to say to you is if this is your first time at church, I understand where you're coming from. Uh, I'm a native Coloradan, and as a native Coloradan, like most of us, I didn't grow up attending church or even believing in God necessarily. In fact, if you look at what researchers say about Colorado, Pew Research, which does kind of nationwide surveys and things about Christianity and about religion, they say that only 30% of Coloradans attend church on a weekly basis. 30%, 3 in 10. And those who say that they believe in God is on the decline in our state. Take, for example, in 2007, 67% of people said that they believed in God. When that same survey was taken in the year 2014, that number had dropped to 55%. And now what most observers believe is that when Pew releases their next batch of surveys, that number will dip below 50% for the first time in American history. So, I understand where you're coming from. If this is your first time inside a church, your story is similar to mine because that's really my story. That's, that's how I grew up. I didn't believe in God. So, when Christmas came around, I considered Christmas about giving and family, rest, relaxation, celebration. But what I cared about most was, was I going to get the gifts that I asked for? Specifically, a Tamagotchi digital pet. Anybody? I always wanted one of those, still never got one. Or it was an excuse to watch 24 hours of a Christmas story on TBS over and over and over and over again. So for Christmas, for me, it had zero religious or really any spiritual connotations to it. But then I grew older and I started to kind of piece together what Christmas meant for Christians. And the way that I learned that was mostly through Christmas songs. Because one time throughout the year, I would be confronted with what Christians actually believed. There were songs like the one by Charles Wesley, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And the lyrics in the second stanza go like this. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Anybody ever heard that song? (laughs) Right? Everybody's heard that song. So I began to piece together what Christianity meant, what Christians believed about Christmas, that Jesus was the everlasting Lord, that he actually was God, right? Also that he became flesh in Jesus to live with us. That's what incarnate deity means or veiled in flesh, the Godhead see means. And it wasn't just that. There was a miraculous claim behind that miraculous claim. And it was the claim that Jesus was the offspring of a virgin's womb. That's the miracle of Christmas. That's the essential claim of Christmas. These two things. Christians believe that Jesus was God incarnate and that he was born of the Virgin Mary some 2,000 years ago. Now, I realize there are some of you in this room this morning, and you hear that, and if you were anything like me, immediately you're filled with questions. (laughs) 
you're, you're curious, you're wondering, can the claims of Christmas, Christianity, and Jesus be true? And you're very skeptical. And you have misgivings and doubts, and you want a place to ask those questions. Questions like, can I really believe the Christmas story? Can I believe in Jesus? And if that's you, if that's where you're coming from, then this series is for you. This is a Christmas for seekers and skeptics. And in fact, our entire aim of this series is leading up to December 24th on Christmas Eve, where we're going to answer the question, can we really believe in Jesus? That's going to be our question on Christmas Eve. But before we get there, we have to take just a couple steps back because if Jesus really is God in flesh, we have to start with a question before that. Can we even really believe in God? Before we can make the leap to saying, I believe Jesus is God, I believe he was born of a virgin, I believe God became flesh, can we even really believe in God? That's our question. So that's what we're going to ask this morning. Can we really believe in God, or is that claim just simply unbelievable? Bertrand Russell, he was a British philosopher. He was an atheist. He's actually one of my favorite authors because he just wears his skepticism and his doubts on his sleeve. In fact, he's so honest and candid about his skepticism. One time he was asked by an interviewer, uh, okay, Bertrand, you've lived your entire life. You've said you were an atheist. You've said you were a concrete scientist. Well, let me ask you, you're, you're approaching the end of your life. Once you die, what if you figure out you're wrong? What if you face God face to face? What will you say to him then? And Bertrand, without batting an eye, said, well, don't blame me, God. There was not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence. It's pretty bold. So like Russell, a hundred or so years ago, and like many before him, we're going to ask this question, is there enough evidence? Can we really believe in God? And to answer that this morning, what I want to do is I want to approach this by taking on the most common questions that people ask when it comes to belief in God. These are the four that I hear most commonly as a pastor when I interact with people. So what we're going to do is we're going to read these four questions, look at them, in great detail, and then we're going to answer and give a response to them. So let's look at our first question. This question is very common, especially today, and it's this. Is belief in God opposed to science? <clears throat> it's the first question. Is belief in God opposed to science? And the question, or it's really more of a narrative, goes something like this. People will say, you know, I'm not a person of faith. I admire people who do believe, but I just can't really believe in God when so much scientific evidence seems to point in the opposite direction. I believe in science and evidence, but belief in God seems to be based on faith apart from proof. Therefore, I just can't believe in a God that I cannot see or touch. If I were to believe in God, I will need proof of his existence. Now, <clears throat> I imagine as I say that, you are thinking of people in your life, or maybe you are the person who holds those same kind of questions or believes in that kind of narrative. And these questions are not just among those who are atheists or agnostics either. In fact, Christians struggle with these questions as well, particularly younger Christians. Christianity Today, which is a magazine that's been in evangelical circles for about the past 90 years, Christianity Today ran an issue in, the, in March of 2021 about this phenomenon known as spiritual deconstruction. And what they meant by that was there was this phenomenon among Gen Z and millennial Christians who are actively questioning their faith in light of all the scientific evidence that they have been raised on. So one of the observers of this phenomenon, her name is Kristen Sanders, she put deconstruction in these terms. She said, those who identify as actively deconstructing their faith are in a difficult struggle to correct or deepen naive Christian belief. And she continues by saying, for some people, this process of deconstructing faith means losing their faith altogether, becoming atheists, agnostics, or spiritual but not religious nuns. So see, it's not just atheists, it's not just agnostics who struggle with these kind of questions, it's sincere, well-meaning Christians as well. And maybe the clearest statement of this narrative about 
proof being in opposition to faith or science being in opposition to God comes from Brett Mercer. He's an evolutionary psychologist from the University of California in Irvine. And he puts it this way. He says, quote, it's easy to see how human beings created the idea for God. In early civilizations, cheaters and criminals were punished by other members of society, and they quickly learned that they have to get along. But in some societies, it is easy to take advantage of others, and there's no way for the group as a whole to punish those who are taking advantage of the system. The solution was to invent an ever-watchful God who will punish criminals for us. Thus, organized religion grew hand-in-hand hand with the rise of civilization. But fast forward a dozen millennia, and here we are living in a technologically advanced society driven by science that tells us the world moves according to the laws of physics and not the whims of spirits or deities. As a result, religious belief has dropped precipitously over the last century. So you see these two distinct groups here, right? Gen Z and millennial Christians and evolutionary psychologists all really wrestling with the same thing and posing the same question. We live in a scientific technological culture. Can we really believe in God? And it seems like faith is opposed to science and modern ways of thinking. You can just ask Bill Maher. Bill Maher says, faith in God is the, quote, purposeful suspension of critical thinking. I don't know if I agree with that. <laughs> but this is a strong narrative. And here's what I want to point out as by way of response here is First, there are a handful of problems with this view, particularly this, that this view expects far too much of science. It expects too much of science. Let me show you what I mean. See, science has taught us many things about how the universe works. In fact, you can look around and see that science has changed the way that we think about how the natural world works. We can look to science and learn how Gravity holds planets in orbit around the sun. Science can tell us how the boiling point of water changes when you go up in altitude or when atmospheric pressure changes. Science can tell us how chlorophyll takes in light from the sun and CO2 to produce food for itself and oxygen for us, which is called photosynthesis, <laughs> right? I had to look that up. <laughs> That's what science does. It answers questions of how. But the problem with this is that even though science can tell us how the universe works, it can never tell us if there's a who behind the how. Put it this way. I don't have my phone with me now, but I have an Apple iPhone. And I could sit down with you and I could tell you how scientifically that Apple iPhone works. Well, I actually couldn't. Somebody else could. <laughs> but they could tell you how the software interacts with the hardware or how the apps function or how it connects to, you know, the, the cellular towers and shoots beams across the sky. Somebody could sit down and tell you how the iPhone works. But that would not prove that Tim Cook or Steve Jobs do not exist, would it? Just because you can explain how something works, it doesn't tell you if there is a who behind the how. Yet when it comes to the universe, we're prone to think, hey, there is no creator. There is no creator behind the creation and there's no who behind the how. Peter Van Inwagen, he is a philosopher and a psychologist. He put it this way. In discover, and he studies the philosophy of science and religion, he says, quote, no discovery of science, so far at any rate, has the least tendency to show that there is no God. See, what Inenwagen is pointing out is that even though science can do many things, we can't expect too much of it. It can never tell us whether or not there is a creator behind the creation, just like Christians cannot prove that there is a God behind the creation. So scientists and those who are faithful are in the same place. So that's our first problem with this narrative. Remember, 
Science cannot tell us if there is a who behind the how, and this objection expects too much from science. But there's other problems that arise with this, and the main other problem is that this narrative or this way of thinking really doesn't appreciate the good, solid, reasonable scientific understandings that could point us to belief in God. Vince Vitale, he's a uh, philosopher and he's an author as well. He put it in these terms. He said, imagine you are watching the World Series of Poker, okay? You're flipping through your channels, you come upon ESPN, and you're watching people play poker. And all of a sudden, one of the players receives a royal flush. And you think, wow, the likelihood of receiving a royal flush in the World Series of Poker, this guy's going to win the hand, obviously. But then all of a sudden... That person on the next hand receives another royal flush. And then on the next hand, they receive another royal flush. And then on the next hand, they receive another royal flush. And they receive 12 straight royal flushes. Let me ask you, what would you conclude if that were the case? Somebody's cheating, right? That those hands were not a completely random occurrence as poker's supposed to be, but instead someone arranged the deck beforehand, right? And Vital continues by saying that over the last 35 years in the scientific community, scientists have approached a near unanimous consensus about a dozen fundamental features of our universe that need to be precisely what they are for any life in the universe to be possible. So these include the strength of gravity, they in include the ratio of electrons and protons in the universe, the strength of electromagnetism, the speed of light, and dozens of other constants that have to be exactly what there are for any life to be possible in the universe. Not just human life, any life. One example of this, just to get your mind around this, by the way, is the strength of gravity. If the strength of gravity were just slightly weaker or just slightly stronger than it is, then what's known as main sequence stars like our sun in our galaxy, they would have been significantly colder and would have not have exploded into supernova, which are the main source of many of the heavier elements that make life conducive in the universe. To put this into perspective, if the strength of gravity were just slightly lower or higher than what it is, then the likelihood of life being a, a reality in the universe is 0 0.0000000, followed by 50 more zeros, 1%. That's the likelihood of life coming together without anybody making the constants line up perfectly. And Vital concludes in this, he says, this is just one example. The speed of light and gravity, these are, these are just a handful of examples. He says there are dozens more of these constants. And the odds necessary for meeting some of these conditions, even on their own, is almost too large to calculate. If you want to think about the odds of this, uh, I think about my kids. I, I think about the, the likelihood of my kids cleaning up their room on their own unprompted. <laughs> and, and not just that, but if you add that with cooking their own dinner without a mess and changing their own diapers and taking care of our dog for a weekend without our dog starving to death. Now, you might say that's possible, maybe for your kids, not my kids. <laughs> But that's the kind of odds we're talking about here. The odds are almost astronomical. You almost can't wrap your mind around them. So we're left with this question. How do you account for these amazing constants, these royal flushes turning up over and over and over again? I believe there are good and reasonable and scientific reasons to conclude someone's got their hands on the cards. Somebody's arranged the deck. There was somebody beforehand who arranged the universe to make life not only possible, but to flourish, especially for human beings created in God's image. That's what I propose. And now to be sure, there really are alternative explanations. So to be fair, there are alternative explanations as to how the universe came to be and life is conducive in our universe. One of them is called a multiverse theory. And the idea behind this is that there are multiple universes, actually even an infinite number of universes, 
all of which the likelihood of life is infinitesimally small. But if there are an infinite number of universes, we happen to find ourselves in the universe where life actually happened. So that is an alternative explanation, but I want you to notice, I want to be fair to this view. I, I do want to be fair, but I do want you to notice the irony in this view. In order to avoid the idea that there is a creator God who we cannot see, cannot touch, or examine scientifically, people have posited that there are an infinite number of universes that we cannot see, that we cannot touch, and we cannot examine scientifically. So just notice the irony. And all that to say is that when it comes to belief in God, we do not have to see science in opposition to faith as the narrative is often framed. In the end of the day, there are many good, scientific, and reasonable reasons to believe in God, and it's not unreasonable or unscientific to believe there is a who behind the how. That leads to question number two. Question number two is very common today. Again, is belief in God just a psychological crutch? Is belief in God just a psychological crutch? And again, Brett Mercer offers another clear expression of this common belief or question people have about faith in God. Remember, he's the evolutionary psychologist at the University of California. He says, there are many psychological and motivational reasons for religious belief. People who are socially isolated tend to have more religious faith, perhaps allowing them to feel they are not truly alone. Likewise, people facing death are more likely to express faith in God and an afterlife. Furthermore, faith in God increases when situations become uncontrollable, as is in the case of natural disasters. Believing in God has a, as a, has a plan helps people regain some sense of control, comfort, or at least acceptance. So you see this narrative or this way of posing this question is there are these two camps. On the one side, you have those who see the world through pure reason or pure objective rationality, and they're able to navigate the hard nature of reality as it is. On the other hand, you have those who are driven by emotion or a need to be comforted. So therefore, in order to face hostile and challenging things in the world, they have to believe in God for emotional comfort. And as the narrative goes, the first camp are those who are secular, they are atheists, they are agnostic, and they're driven by reason. But you have the other camp of those who believe in God. They're spiritual and they're driven more by emotion. That's a common narrative, like I said. In fact, I actually experienced this personally about two years ago when uh, I was at Starbucks just over here by King Supers. And there I met a friend who brought another one of his friends. And the friend of my friend asked me, you're a pastor, right? I told him yes. And he said, let me ask you, why do you even believe in God? I said, well, there are many reasons, but I gave kind of an understanding of how I came to faith, how I believed in Jesus when I was in college, how I had hit a deep, dark spot in my life and I needed somebody to take me out of that, how I realized that I was a moral failure and I needed somebody to help me with my moral failing. And he said, I understand that. And I can understand why people need that to be true. And I kind of scratched my head and said, well, what do you mean? And he responded by saying, well, I think people believe in God to give them comfort. They need God to be true because it gives them a sense of security and hope beyond the hard things of life. But I personally just don't need that. In other words, what he was saying is, well, Christianity or belief in God more generally is a psychological crutch. It's something that gives us comfort to get through the day. And now... I just have to say, I agree as a person who believes in God, there are plenty of psychological and emotional reasons to believe in God. And they can even cloud my reasoning, reasoning, my thinking. So I think back to when my son Eli was born, one of our, our first of four. And I, I think back to when he was born, he had to immediately be rushed to the intensive care unit, the neonatal intensive care unit. And we didn't know what was going on, but he ended up spending about a week in there as they were trying to figure out his blood sugar levels. And my wife and I, we were deeply comforted by the fact that there was a God who actually, in the midst of that hardship, was overseeing that circumstance. We derived plenty of emotional comfort from that. Or I was just doing a funeral a number of months ago of somebody in our congregation, and it gave me 
great emotional comfort and hope that this man, in as much pain as he lived through, would one day, after his death, be in a place where he would see God face to face and he would not live with pain or evil anymore. So yes, there are plenty of psychological and emotional reasons to believe in God. And at times, I admit, they can cloud my reason. I'm sure they do at points. But what I want to point out to you is that this actually cuts both ways. This narrative actually cuts both ways. Because on the one side, yes, there are plenty of good reasons to believe in God, emotional reasons. But there are equally as many emotional and psychological reasons to not believe in God. The philosopher at NYU, his name's Thomas Nagel, he himself, an atheist, put it perfectly in one of his books. He said, quote, I want atheism to be true. And I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. He's probably talking about you. (laughs) It isn't just that I don't believe in God, and naturally, I hope that I am right in my unbelief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. It is just as irrational to be influenced in one's belief by the hope that God does not exist as by the hope that God does exist. Now that's a mouthful there, but here's what Nagel is saying. He's saying there are just as many emotional and psychological reasons for not believing in God as there are for believing in God. Again, It does give people psychological comfort to believe that there is not a God who has a system of morality who will one day judge them for their breaking of that system of morality. It gives them a lot of comfort. It gives people emotional ease to not believe in a God who sees every single thing that they do and who will hold them to account for even their thoughts or their desires in this life. That gives people emotional support and psychological comfort. I'll just submit, even as a person who believes in God, even as a person who follows Jesus, I have to admit that sometimes believing in God doesn't always give me the most comfort. For instance, Psalm uh, Psalm number 139, verse 11, puts God in these terms. And when you really reflect on these, it can be actually very emotionally distressing. The psalmist here says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, O Lord. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. See, God sees even my darkest secrets. He knows things about my life that nobody, nobody knows. He knows things about me that I have covered up, things about me that I have done to make myself look good. He knows ways that I try and manipulate other people for my own personal gain. And I'll be honest, oftentimes that gives me a lot of distress. It would be a lot more comforting to believe that that God doesn't exist. Or take another Psalm. This is Psalm 7. And here the author again is talking about just the the nature of God, and he he describes God as a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will whet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. God here is described as a righteous warrior judge of a God who will punish any breaches to his moral systems. He will judge the hatred that I have for others who are not like me. God will judge my envy and jealousy for people who are actually smarter than me. He will judge my pride that seeks to make myself appear good before people like you. So if I'm honest, even as a person who believes in God, I have to admit there are times when I would have much more comfort if that God didn't exist. And I would have psychological, emotional stability that I otherwise wouldn't have. Aldous Huxley, he he was the author of Brave New World, which you probably read in high school. He put it perfectly. He said, for myself, The philosophy of meaninglessness, meaning the philosophy which says there is no God, for myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. 
See, here's what Huxley was saying in a nutshell. He was saying even he as an atheist had emotional and psychological motives for not believing in God. He knew if the universe is meaningless, if God doesn't exist, then I can do whatever I want. I can pursue political power. I can step on necks to achieve where I want to achieve. And I can do whatever I want with my body sexually because there is no God who will hold me to account. So he says, even as an atheist... I derive great comfort for believing that God does not exist. So you see, this argument cuts both ways. The believer has many psychological, emotional reasons to believe that God exists, but the unbeliever has just as many psychological and emotional reasons to believe that God does not exist. So that brings us to our final couple of questions here. And I only have about 10 minutes left, so we're not going to be able to dive into these as deeply as I would like to. But it does bring us to uh, a couple of questions that I think move beyond just intellectual. These first two questions that we've dealt with are more intellectual objections. These next objections or questions about Christianity really touch us emotionally. They're more visceral objections to Christianity. And the first is this. Is belief in God a road to injustice? Is belief in God a road to injustice? Another way of putting this is, how can I believe in God when so many bad things have been done in the name of God? Anybody heard that objection before? That's the question we have to take very seriously. We have to take it very seriously. I actually feel this acutely as a Christian. Uh, Tim Keller, who is the author of this book, Reason for God, which you can pick up on our book table just outside here in the lobby, Tim Keller has an entire chapter devoted to this question in that book. And at the beginning of the chapter, he interviews two New York City law students when asking them about Christianity. And they said that they have, no, they have to doubt any religion that has so many fanatics and hypocrites. There are so many people who are not religious at all, who are more kind and even more moral than many of the Christians that I know. The church has a history of supporting injustice, of destroying culture. If Christianity is the true religion, how can this be? And now I want to tread lightly on this question. And in doing this, I actually want to speak to two groups. The first group I want to speak to is those of you who do believe in God, you consider yourself Christians, followers of Jesus. And I want to say to you, first off, this objection is true. This objection is true. You can look through the annals of Christian history and you can see people who have used their faith as a cover to support racism and segregation. You can look through history and find Christians who used Christian language and theology to justify imperialism and genocide. You can even find today pastors who claim that American slave owners were benevolent masters and that bringing African slaves to the American colonies resulted in a better quality of life for those who were enslaved. You can find people who say that today. So we have to take this seriously and say these objections are true. And for us as Christians, we have to be honest. We have to be repentant. And we have to acknowledge the force of this objection to Christianity and admit when we fail now and when we failed in the past, and we have to realize there is no justification for these kind of atrocities. None. None. And we don't have to feel like we have to justify it in order to make Christianity look good. The second group I want to talk to are those of you who do consider yourself seekers and skeptics. This objection or question about Christianity, I want to, I want to show you, it actually proves too much. And what I mean by that is, if hypocrisy and injustice are your sole basis for rejecting Christianity, then you have to reject all ideologies, all religions, and all other philosophies because there is no ideology, whether it be conservatism, liberalism, progressivism, nationalism, anarchism, socialism, communism, capitalism. There is no philosophy whether it be naturalism, nihilism, secularism, humanism, Hegelianism, 
There is no religion, whether it be Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, paganism, or Judaism. If you look through the annals of history, you will find that none of those systems, none of those ideologies, none of those religions, none of those philosophies have a clean moral record and are free from the stain of hypocrisy. Every, every human system has hypocrisy, injustice, and moral corruption, and a bent toward evil. And it would be unwise and uncharitable to neglect something or reject something outright just because there are hypocrites who practice that system. After all, it would be wrong to say secularism in all of its forms is terrible and should be rejected because of the works of Stalin or Lenin. And Every one of us probably in this room would say, hey, it's uncharitable to totally throw out liberal democracy because of what the United States did to Native Americans during the colonial period. So here's the reality. There is a measure of good in all of these ideologies, in all of these philosophies and religions, but what's the one common denominator in all of them that corrupts them? Humans right? We are the common denominator because we are the ones who twist what is good, what is true into systems of injustice and evil and self-advancement. And in this objection, what I want to do is, before I've been just kind of arguing for God in general, really I want to show you this is actually where Christianity is unique and Really, I would say the only system or religious belief that can really answer this question in its fullness. What makes Christianity so unique is this. You look at all other religions and they will say, hey, if you follow our system, if you follow our religion, if you follow our rules, if you follow our rituals, then you will become a more virtuous and good person. But Christianity is different because when you follow Jesus, when you follow Jesus Christ, you actually begin to realize how moral he is, how pure he is, how good he actually was and how loving he was. And in that system, you actually start to believe and you start to understand just how fallen, how sinful, how broken and how immoral you actually are. See, all other religions, all other philosophies, they say, do this system, you'll become better. Christianity says, do this system, follow Jesus, you'll realize how bad you are. Anybody want to sign up? <laughs> Paul, Paul's a great example of this. Paul was an early follower of Jesus, and he put this so well. Paul had this amazing conversion experience from Judaism to Christianity, and he's writing another pastor and he says this, he wanted to remind this pastor whose name was Timothy of this truth. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Do you see how unique this is compared to all other religious or philosophical or ideological systems? The more Paul followed God the more he was actually humbled in how good Jesus is and how bad he was. Jesus was not a way for him to become better, but to expose how bad he was and how wretched he actually had become. So do you see the difference here? Do you see the difference? It is Christianity alone that says we are broken, we are sinful, we are the ones who distort every human ideology, philosophy, and religion. And it's because of that that we need someone outside of ourselves to save us from ourselves. It is Christianity alone that says you need a savior, not just a moral system to become better. It is Christianity alone that says you need to be saved from your hypocrisy, Maybe even more than the person sitting next to you. I know, it's hard to believe. I say the same thing every time I sit next to my wife, but. <laughs> you need someone to save you from your sin. That's what Christianity exposes. No other religious system says, says that. Again, if you're a seeker or a skeptic this, this morning, here's what I want to ask you. And I want to say this very gently and humbly, but what is your moral and philosophical system? What is your moral system? And can you honestly say that you have lived up to that? I was in Golden probably three years ago when I moved to Colorado. And I was sitting on the campus of Colorado School of Mines. And 
we were sitting with another group of Christians, and, and we were just telling people about uh, Christianity and why we believed that it was rational to believe in God. And I was interacting with this young student, and he said, you know, the, the biggest thing about Christians is that they don't practice what they preach. Christians break their own moral standards. I grew up hearing about Christians talk about the Ten Commandments and how those had to be normative for everybody in society, but they violate them all the time. And I asked him, hey, that's a fair point. Let me ask you, what is your moral standard? What is your system that you think we should live by? And he, he said, well, it's easy. I think people should just live a good life and do no harm to others. That's it. That's what makes somebody good. That's what makes them just. And I said, okay, fair enough. Just one observation, though. That's a pretty low standard. Compared to Christianity, that's a pretty low standard of being good. Have you lived up to that standard? And he said, well, not exactly. <laughs> Again, here's, here's what makes Christianity so unique. No matter how low we make the standard for ourselves, we're going to realize that we are going to be hypocrites of that standard. We're going to tell people they need to follow that standard, and nonetheless, we're going to break it two seconds later. Why? Because our problem is not anything that a system can alleviate. Our problem is our own human hearts, which twist and distort every system within justice and corruption. This is the fascinating thing about Jesus, too, is even though God does have a moral system, he alone was the one who actually submitted himself to that system. That's the unique claim of Christianity as well. That God doesn't give us a system, turn his back, and, and allow us to, to live within that system or break that system. No, the story of Christianity is God the Son, Jesus Christ, came down and he actually submitted himself to his own law. He submitted himself to his own system of morality, and he actually bore the cost and penalty of our injustice and our distortion of our laws and our moral systems. So with the three minutes I have remaining, I know I'm kind of blazing through these three minutes remaining, and then we'll get to our Q&A after, which you'll be able to ask any other questions you'd like. But with these remaining three minutes that I have, I, I want to answer one final question. And, I, and again, I'm only going to be able to skim the surface of this one. But the question is this. Is belief in God possible when evil exists? I have a wife and four kids, and I have to think. I, I have studied the Bible. I have studied theology. I've studied philosophy. Intellectually, I don't have any problem believing in Christianity. But if I were not going to believe in Christianity, if I were not going to believe in God, I honestly think the thing that would bump me off the path of believing in God is if my wife and my four kids were to die horribly or horrifically unexpectedly. I honestly think if, if that happened, I would have to sincerely wrestle with the question, is this God good? Is this God actually all-powerful that he could not stop my children and my wife from dying unexpected, unexpectedly? We've all wrestled with this question. If God is good, if God is all-powerful, then why is there evil in the world? What is the reason for that, God? And let me begin by saying is, I don't know. I don't. For me to stand here and say, I will give you airtight philosophical and biblical proofs that will show that God can reconcile these things, I don't think I can do it. I do have some things that I think can help, and, you, and we can go over those in the Q&A after. But I don't believe that there is any airtight, lock-solid answer to that question. So let me just say, I don't know the reason. But, again... I do believe Christianity offers something unique that no other religion or no other philosophy can answer, and that is the cross. See, the center of Christianity is God becoming a human being and being crucified for our sins on the cross. All religions believe God is all-powerful. All religions believe that God is good, but it's only Christianity that says God became human. Christianity says that God himself God himself in Jesus became a human being to suffer for us on the cross in his crucifixion. Paul again writes about this. It was in a letter to a church in Corinth and he put it this way. He said, for our sake, he made him, that him being Jesus, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness 
of God. That's the message of Christianity, that God became man without sin, but God transferred our sin onto Jesus. He made him to take on our sin, to die for our sins, to die for our evil, to die for our immorality, our injustice. He took those upon himself and he was crucified in our place so that we might become righteous, that we might have forgiveness of sins through faith in him. Again, no other religious system says that God submitted himself to his own law and then submitted himself to human injustice so that we could be forgiven. So we may not know the reason why God allows evil and suffering, but we do know the reason why he does not allow evil and suffering. God does not allow evil and suffering because he does not love you. The cross tells us beyond a shadow of a doubt that the reason for evil and suffering cannot be God does not love you. God loves us so much. He was willing to take on human flesh, suffer in our place. He was willing to die for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Charles Wesley, as, as we wrap this up, Charles Wesley, remember that song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing? That last line says that Jesus is our Emmanuel. That word Emmanuel means God with us. And we look at the cross, given the cross, given the suffering of Jesus, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, even though God allows suffering, even though he is good, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt he is with us even in our suffering. And he was willing to suffer for us. He was even willing to suffer for the injustice in all of us that put him on the cross. Only Christianity can say that. So can we really believe in God? Yes. This God is a good God. He is the God in flesh, the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, God, you are almighty, you are all good. You know our going out, our coming in, nothing is hidden from you. Darkness is as light to you, Heavenly Father. You see everything you do. You even know the questions that we have. And I pray, God, that you would help us this morning as, as we continue to ponder these things. Help us more and more to understand who you are. Help us to see Jesus and what he has achieved for us on the cross in submitting himself to the law that you gave. Help us to grasp parts of your scriptures and wrestlings in our own heart that we find difficult. And above all else, God, help us to respond to you in the right way with worship, with faith, and with love. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus, your son, by the power of your spirit. Amen. Um, I, I wanted to just start real quick because I know um, in preparing for today, Daniel... Uh, ran out of time to answer the fourth question, maybe in the greatest amount of detail. Yep. And so you talked a little bit about the, uh, the cross as an answer to the problem of evil, uh, theonomy. But um, any other thoughts, any further expansion of that that might be helpful? And then if you could send in any questions, we'd, we'd love to address those. Yeah, so like I said, I didn't, I didn't answer the question of evil you know, really directly from any philosophical standpoint at all. But just a couple of ways of getting at that. If God is all good, if God is uh, all powerful, then why is there evil? Um, one way of getting at that is to, to really just question whether or not that's an apt description of who God is, right? Now, I'm not suggesting that God is not all powerful or that God is not all good. He absolutely is. Um, but that's a very limited view of who God is, Right? If you read the Bible, for instance, the Bible shows you that God is way more than those things, right? God is also all wise. He's also just. He's also holy. He's also uh, forgiving. So there's, there's way more beyond God just being all good and all powerful. So you have to take all those into consideration. Because if you just view God as all loving and all good and evil exists, then that presents a problem. But just take, for example, if God is all wise and eternally just, does it make sense that he actually has a wise, eternal plan for why he's allowing evil to exist? 
right? So as, as you have a bigger view of God, it doesn't answer the question, but it does show that, hey, you don't have to choose this God who is just all good and all powerful. We have a much bigger, much more comprehensive God than that. So that's the, that's the first way. The second thing I'd mention is um, I think about when, uh, it's about three years ago, and it was Christmas time, and uh, somebody who's close to our family, we were watching TV. I remember it was in my grandma's basement. And there was something on the TV about something about women and genocide. I can't remember all the details about it, but this person who I was sitting next to, I knew was an atheist, and she believed like pretty much that science and reason opposed one another, or science and faith opposed one another, rather. And she was watching this, this clip on the TV, and she said, man, that is just wicked and evil. And I looked at her and I said, that's interesting. I agree with you, but I don't know why you believe that. Because as a Christian, I believe all, all people are created in God's image. So genocide and the abuse of women is terrible because they're image bearers. They have dignity. But she believed in natural evolution, naturalism and evolution, which means she believed that human beings uh, does, descended from or adapted from lower life forms. So she believed essentially that all the world started as single microcell organisms and then evolu by evolution advanced through a process of natural selection to become what we are today, which means there's no moral difference between human beings and animals or human beings and single cell organisms. So I asked her, well, why do you believe that? Why do you believe that that's wrong or evil or unjust for that to happen? And she said, well, it just is, because people have human rights. And again, I said, well, if people have human rights, you're assuming that there's a right giver. You're assuming somebody has given them those rights that nature doesn't give. And so, really, it's only belief in God that we can actually even call something evil. If we look at the world and we say that is evil, it's because we intuit that there is a God who exists. There's a God who's given us his image and endowed human beings with dignity. So it just problematizes it that way. Uh, a little bit. So that's how, I, that's how I'd answer that question. All right. I don't know if our text message line is working. Or nobody not. has questions. Or nobody know. has questions. I know David Kowalczyk had a question. And so, David, do you yeah, want to do you want to say it? Because I think uh, you, you can maybe project. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And you know, I don't know where that number came from, but uh, you know, uh -huh. as a Christian, if you can ask that, well, you can't just believe that life started 4,500 years ago. I mean, yep. we know it was before then. And the explanation I've had from it is that, from reading, is that there were God existed before, but it was the first time God revealed Himself to sinners and identified sinners mm. in this world. And then from that point on, is where. Not sure if that's the right interpretation, but just looking for clarification on that. Sure. Sure. So. Yeah, there are a number of genealogies in the Bible. So if you look at, uh, for instance, just the New Testament opens with a genealogy. And if you were to ask yourself, why on earth would the author of the Bible, Matthew, who's eager to tell us about Jesus, why would he start with a genealogy? Well, some people will answer that question by saying, well, he's going to show us how Jesus came to be, obviously, but then we can trace that back to figure out how old the universe is, or how old life is. And if that's the way that you approach it, I actually think you're missing the point of genealogies. So the point of genealogies in the Bible is not to give us uh, exact number of years from when God created, created humanity to now, but instead it's supposed to trace God's promise throughout the Bible. So you mentioned, David, you know, when God clothed Adam and Eve, God, right before he clothes Adam and Eve, gives a promise that one day he's going to come and destroy the works of Satan, right? So that's God's promise, that he's going to destroy the works of Satan, that he's going to defeat his lies, and that he's going to provide a savior for humanity. That's essentially the promise. 
God gives that promise to Adam, and then Adam faithfully believes in that promise up until the time of Noah. Then Noah believes in that promise, and he's brought through the waters of judgment. And then that same promise is threatened when Abraham isn't going to have a child. God gives him that promise, right? The same promise that he gave Adam that a Savior is going to come. And all of a sudden, Abraham can't have a child. He's upwards of 100 years old. And so as you're reading Genesis, you should be wondering not how old is humanity or how old's the, the earth, but is God's promise going to come to fulfillment? And it constantly seems threatened. And so that's why the Gospel of Matthew opens with the words, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Because genealogies are to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises that God gave to Adam, to Abraham, to David, and throughout all of the people of Israel, so that when Jesus comes, people would look and say, oh my goodness, look, God has been faithful to his promise. So if you're looking to genealogies to tell you how old the earth is, I think you're just misreading the, what the Bible is supposed to give us by genealogies. They're supposed to trace God is faithful even when it looks like his promise is in doubt. So that's how I'd answer that. And, yep. and I would maybe just add, um, we want to be careful when we read the Bible to, um, we bring our questions to it, which uh, were not necessarily the things the Bible was trying to answer. Mm-hmm. It's not the questions that the people at the di- in that time were asking. And so it wasn't answering some of the questions that we have. It doesn't mean they're, mm-hmm. are, it's not true, but it's not necessarily addressing some of our scientific questions that kind of fit how we think um, in, our, in our day and age. It's, yeah. it's addressing the questions that were happening at that time. So we just want to be careful when we put our questions on the Bible um, in, in that it's, you're, we're maybe asking it to answer something it wasn't meant to answer. Yep, yep, that's right. So... Um, any other questions from the room? Let me pull up here. Um, yeah. Yeah, any other questions? Yeah. When you were talking about personal tragedy, yep. that exists, and could elaborate on that in your answer? Yeah, so if I understood right, just elaborate kind of on personal tragedy, how I've dealt with that. Is that right? Yeah, that's good. Um, So, yeah, because I wasn't able to get into it in in great detail, I did outline this, uh, I think, just before you guys walked in. But I'll I'll just give in brief, in sum, kind of what I said. Um, The first is that the problem of evil, right, the the problem that God is all good, that God is all powerful, and that evil exists. Um, In that, there's, there's an assumption that that's all God is. That God is all good and he's all powerful. That's it. When you look at the Bible, for instance, the Bible gives you this comprehensive picture of God that goes way beyond just a God who's all good and all powerful. It's a God who's also eternally just, who's eternally wise, who's unchangeably righteous. And so if you have all of those categories, it does help you think through the problem of evil. It doesn't satisfy it perfectly. But it helps you think that, okay, if God is infinitely wise and eternally wise, That at least helps us think, okay, God might have a reason in his divine wisdom why he is allowing evil to exist, even though we don't have an answer for it ourselves. So that at least helps you navigate that intellectually. The second problem I, uh, or second thing I brought up, which I think is a helpful way of getting at this is, really, unless you believe in God, you can't call anything evil or say that anything's bad. What I mean by that is, If you don't believe in God, then you believe that the material world or the natural world is all that there is, and that it exists on its own, it doesn't have a purpose, and that natural selection is what guides human history. And if natural selection is what guides human history and it's survival of the fittest, then when we see things happen like genocide, or we see things like abuse or neglect or um, even personal tragedy in our own life, What we have to say is, well, that's just natural selection. Natural selection means the fittest ones are going to survive, that those who are strongest in a tribe should use their power to advance their uh, ability to procreate by subjugating other people. And if that's your guiding paradigm, then you really can't say anything's evil. All you can say is, oh, that's just how the universe works. 
But if you believe in God, then you believe that God created human beings specifically in his image. You believe that human beings have dignity. You believe that God created us with meaning and purpose and therefore to infringe on that meaning and purpose of another person would mean that you're infringing on God's plan and therefore it's morally wrong and morally evil. So those are just two ways to get at it. Again, those are kind of intellectual and when you're, when you're suffering, a, when you're suffering, I mean, that, that helps, but it, it's definitely not going to do you much a, good. Just a very personal example. Um, my wife in January was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Um, totally unexpected. Four young kids, completely overwhelming. And what do you do with that? You know, it's personal suffering. And it's, it's not right. It's not the way things should be. And um, so personally, what that looked like for me was um, in my own prayers to say, God, I, I still trust that you're good. I still trust that you're powerful. Um, I don't understand this, but who, where else am I going to go? Who else am I going to turn to? And uh, experienced through that, through the months that followed that diagnosis, just a profound sense of God's presence and care and love um, that, that brought us through that. Um, so there's, yeah, there's the intellectual side of it, and then there's the personal experience, which is mm -hmm. never easy, but, um, you know, that's at least been part of our journey here this last year. Yeah. A that's question good. back here. Yeah, follow-up. Uh, considering the problem of evil, to what extent does human free will contribute? Yeah, so there's, there's a distinction between natural evil. Usually philosophers make this distinction. Uh, so natural evil and then moral evil. When it comes to the category of moral evil, there is a good explanation as to why evil is in the world. It's because human beings have brought it into the world, right? Um, the reason there's moral corruption is because we're morally corrupt. Um, the reason that we commit atrocities is because we're sinful. That's what the Bible says. So in that instance, it's, it's pretty simple. Yeah, humans have free will. We have abused that free will. And because of that, there's moral evil in the world. As to the question of natural evil, why hurricanes exist, disasters exist, um, I don't think you can answer that question philosophically. I think you actually have to answer that biblically, and here's the, here's the answer to it. The Bible says that the whole creation is in the go, uh, pains of childbirth until now. So the, uh, the image there is that the earth is in profound pain. And then the author of that same letter earlier said, that the reason evil exists or sin exists in the world and there's any death or, at all is because Adam, the first human being, sinned. And with his sin, he brought the whole natural order into disarray. So in Christianity, we, we say, well, the reason there's evil is because of human beings. Natural evil and moral evil. Philosophers can only say moral evil and then natural evil. Well, that just kind of exists outside of ourselves. But no, as human beings create in God's image, We've actually been given what the Bible calls dominion over creation. And in our fall, so falls the world. And so the reason that there's death, there's pain, there's evil, there's suffering is because human beings have ushered in sin into the world. Now, I want to be cl clear, though. What I don't mean by that is the reason somebody has cancer, or the reason somebody's sick, or the reason somebody's suffering is because they sinned, right? I'm not saying that. But I'm saying sin has such a profound effect on the natural world beyond what we can comprehend, that that's why those things exist. So did that get at your question? Okay, that's great. We have time for maybe one more, one more question. If anybody has one, those are all great. Yeah, Jim. I think I know the answer to this or what you're trying to say, but okay. I think it deserves being talked about. So archeology span shows us that we have uh, Neanderthal bones and, yeah. and dinosaur bones and um, could you, could you reconcile that with creation, or, or is, it, is it an issue of a young creation versus an old creation, mm -hmm. or, or what is it? I'll be honest. I do not have an answer to that question. <laughs> I have no idea. So there are some things that are beyond, yeah, I mean, my scope, but do you have a yeah, way of getting at that, And it kind of gets at some of, like, the dating of the earth. Those are great questions. Those are important questions. I don't know that they're questions the Bible's trying to answer. And so at that point, we're speculating, and, and we believe that God has revealed himself in two ways. So he's revealed himself through his word and through his world. And so if we're understanding those things accurately, then those things are true, 
and we have to, you know, and, and we're finite, so we're, we're going to have to put the pieces together over time and realize how we got things wrong and maybe some things we got right, and, and that's somewhat of a process. But mm -hmm. those two ways that God has revealed himself do not conflict with each other, we believe. And so let's study these things and let's understand these things and let's dig into that and let's try and put these pieces together recognizing that we're finite and there's a lot of questions we might not have answers to ever or we might just not have answers to them at all. So I think one thing you told me before was that the Bible is not all-inclusive. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Thank you for reminding me of the answer I gave you one time. Uh, so, yeah, the Bible isn't all-inclusive, right? The Bible is not going to give us specific answers to questions that we have that are modern-day questions. So, for instance, the Bible does not, at least to my knowledge, the Bible does not mention um, sloths. But nonetheless, sloths exist, right? The You're animal. A sloth, I'm a sloth, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the Bible doesn't mention that animal, but nonetheless it exists, Right? So if we're looking to the Bible and saying, hey, you know what, the Bible doesn't mention dinosaurs, so therefore the Bible can't be accurate. No, it's just not answering the question of dinosaurs. It, that's not the question in mind. So when you look at books, perfect example of this, and this will be the last thing I'll add here. When you look at books like Leviticus, for instance, most people today will read that book and will say, what on earth is this? This makes no sense. There's animal sacrifices. There's all this very detail about how God needs to be worshipped, about how his temple's to be adorned. And we think that, that has no relevance to my life. Well, that's because it's answering a specific question that people had then that we don't realize that we should have now. And that question is, how can sinful human beings stand before a holy God? If that's the question behind Leviticus, then it starts to make sense. Oh, this God's holy. If he's going to be approached, there's going to be a sacrifice. There's going to be blood to wash away sins. There's going to be a cleansing that takes forth. There's going to be a priest who goes before us. And what the Bible is clear about later on is that Jesus is the Lamb of God, the sacrifice who takes away the sin of the world. He's the high priest who offers up a sacrifice. He's the temple place of God, the dwelling place of God on earth, in flesh, incarnate. So if you have those things in place, the Bible starts to make sense. But yeah, if you're asking questions it doesn't answer, then you're just going to scratch your head. I so. want to uh, honor the one person who sent a text message question. Okay, yeah. Go Why doesn't God or Jesus return now? Yeah. And then we'll wrap it. Yeah, so why doesn't Jesus just return now? Well, the Bible says certain things have to happen before Jesus returns, um, and he's given his church a commission to make disciples. So um, God has a plan of when he's going to return. He hasn't disclosed that to human beings. The Bible is very clear about that. Why he doesn't, uh, Peter gets at this a little bit. It's because God is being long-suffering and patient so that people will repent and believe in his name. So we think the world is so bad, why doesn't Jesus just return? God's way of thinking of that is the world is so bad, I wish people would return to me. Um, and I'm going to delay that and be patient and long-suffering with human beings so that they can do that. So that's how the Bible answers that question. Um, yeah. Yeah, so let, let's talk about that after, Cheryl. We, we have three let, minutes let's, before let's the talk service about that. Yeah, starts. Th and that's service a, starts in three minutes. That's a big, that's yeah. a big question. <laughs> but please, uh, we're always available to you know, talk and have conversations, and uh, we'll have more of these as the, the weeks move along here. But thank you all yeah, for Yeah, thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks.